Well, if you've been with us uh, for some time now, you'll know we, we've been traveling verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. Um, we've been in it just a little under a year and a half, and at the end of October, we'll be concluding that, and we'll be launching into a new season, our new series. Um, but if you're with me, you can look in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse number 53, and many times we'll read through the story. I'll go back and give you some details, and then uh, we'll try to give you some, some points throughout the story that you can apply. This morning, what I'd like to do is take a, a slightly different approach, is I'd love to just read the story in sections, fill in some historical details and things that really, I believe, give it new insight, new understanding. Sometimes we can read a story that we've read many times or we've heard many times, something like the arrest and trial of Jesus that we'll be looking at today. There's many details that are there that because we're not familiar with uh, historical settings, we're not familiar maybe with the Judeo-Christian, uh, the, the, Jude- the Jewish legal system, that there's things that we won't understand and realize, and um, we'll just look at the trial of Jesus, realize some things weren't done to him fairly, and then we'll kind of move on to the next piece in the story. So what I'd like to do is just progress through the story, a section of verses at a time, share with you some things that I believe in, even as we look at these details, we can find application for us, and then end by giving you three or four different questions that I believe we can use from the story to examine our lives. So let's look at this together, beginning of verse 53. If you remember, Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas. He's been arrested uh, by a, a large troop of soldiers in the garden, and now he's being brought to the high priest for trial. It says, they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their test. Their statements did not agree. Something that's worth noting as we just pause there for a moment, when we look at this, we can immediately see something that's, that's taking place, and we get a sense that, that these individuals are coming with a pre-established agenda, and we've seen this throughout, that they're not looking for truth. They're looking for a way to, to get Jesus. But really, what we need to realize and, and just pause and understand is that the entire Jewish legal system was established on the principle of equity and justice making sure that when individuals were brought to trial, making sure that when someone was being accused of something, that they, were, they would be able to be guaranteed having a fair trial. In fact, much of our government system today, its roots are founded in the Judeo-Christian system that we see described in scriptures. There'll be individuals, I'll read and hear individuals today trying to talk about how to our government system and our ju- uh, judicial system here in the U.S. is not founded on biblical principles, but that's not true. If you look back, you'll find that it's, it's very much established and rooted in biblical principles from the Judeo-Christian uh, point of view, and, and it, because it's, it's focused in the established element, the, the legal system is established on justice, on giving equality to every single person who came before the courts. Now, I want you to see something. There's a detail that if you remember last week when we looked at the arrest of Judas, we looked at a couple of the different gospel, uh, gospel accounts because in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all, from a different perspective, give us details of what's taking place in this moment. And we spent a lot of time looking in John last week. And so I'm going to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 18 for just a moment. John chapter 18, beginning in verse number 12. Uh, in this one, we see that uh, John includes one detail that Mark leaves out. And Mark doesn't leave it out because he's being careless with information. He's not leaving it out because he doesn't think it matters. It's 
just thinking about the focus of the audience, knowing they were people who really had no understanding of the Jewish background. They weren't, they, most of them were not Jewish believers. So he thought, this is the detail. Doesn't carry a lot of weight with them, so I'm just going to include it in the rest of the story, but not go into detail. But look what John says, John chapter 12, I'm sorry, John chapter 18, verse 12. It says, then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. So where Mark says Jesus is arrested and immediately brought to the high priest's house for trial, John includes an important detail. He says that Jesus was arrested, but instead of being taken to Caiaphas' house first, first he's taken to Annas' house, Annas being the father-in-law of the high priest. Now, you might look at that. You're thinking from our day, our age, you're thinking about your mother-in-law, you're thinking about your father-in-law. You're thinking, you know, if I'm involved in some sort of legal system, legal issue, why would they drag my father-in-law into this? I'd just be thinking that. And to understand this, you have to understand that the, the high priest position is a position that is, that is passed along through generations, that it's hereditary. It, according to Josephus, who is the Jewish historian of that time, he told us that, that Annas served as a high priest for about nine years. That he was incredibly powerful, incredibly uh, savvy, both politically as well as with the people. So much so that the Roman government, who is now the controlling government, began to be threatened by Annas. They were threatened by his rule. They were threatened by his authority. And so they chose to have him removed as a high priest. Rather than ex ex uh, executing or excommunicating him because they knew of the power and his influence with the people, they merely had him step down. Because the position is hereditary, he then identified his son to follow him in his step as being the high priest. Having his son then follow him in his steps, his son lasted for about two years. So Annas lasted for about nine years, very significant, very influential, very powerful. The, Rome's, Roman is, is, uh, the Roman government's threatened by him, so he puts his son in charge. His son does a very lousy job, struggles with a position, lasts maybe two years. And finally, Annas looks at this and says, this is not working. He pulls his son out of that position, and then he, in turn, puts his son-in-law, his son rather, Caiaphas, in the position. Caiaphas served for at least 18 years, was very politically savvy, really, really kind of followed in the steps of, of Annas, being very, very savvy with the government, very savvy with the people, knowing how to be able to work both sides, ultimately for his own benefit, if you remember, we looked at it just earlier, many weeks ago, but just earlier in this week that's taking place in Jesus' life, that he, Jesus had come and he had cleared out the temple of all of the people who were selling uh, goods and exchanging money. That whole system, if you remember, was set up by Caiaphas. He had made the high priest position a, pre, a position that was meant to represent the presence of God to the people and to represent the people to God. He took that position and he made it a very lucrative position so that almost everything that took place in the temple, everything that took place with Jewish worship, that he could then benefit and pocket money from that in, in turn. So Caiaphas has become very powerful, but Annas has not lost his position of influence. That's why many think that he's taken, if you look, in fact, in John, the, the space we're looking at, if you look in verse 19, when John is writing it, and we see from the, the record that John actually knows the high priest, John, referring to Annas, who has been removed as a high priest, John actually still calls him the high priest. We can just see how influential this man is and, and really how powerful he is. And you look at the questions he puts to Jesus, trying to trap Jesus, trying to trick Jesus, trying to do a number of things. 
But in this, they, this, this piece, they, they take Jesus first to Annas' house, then to Caiaphas' house. And I think part of the reason would be to help try and buy some time. See, we, we know as we've been looking through the gospel of Mark, we know that Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders is, is uh, nothing quiet. They've been resisting him at every turn. And you have to keep in mind, Jesus' uh, popularity has reached an all-time high. He had just ridden into town being declared the Messiah. He had just openly been, been uh, escorted into town by just thousands of people coming and celebrating Jesus, celebrating his Messiahship. They're excited about him. And the religious leaders realize, we, if we need to do something, we need to figure out how we're going to do this and fast. I mean, Jesus is really becoming a challenge to our system and to our power and our influence and our authority. And then the opportunity comes to them. Judas comes, one of Jesus' own, one of his inner circle, one of his, his 12, and comes to them and says, I'll, I'll betray him. I'll turn him over to you. Pay me this much, and I'll turn him over to you. So really, this unexpected uh, opportunity that comes their way. So they have to move rather quickly to figure out how to, how to pounce on this opportunity that's been given, keeping in mind that it's on, they're on Thursday night, they're approaching the Passover celebration. So they begin to realize that we now have this opportunity. We have someone who knows where Jesus is going to be, excluded away from the crowds. We know where he's going to be, when he's going to be there. We have the opportunity to finally take possession of Jesus, not cause an uproar, not have the crowd stirring and wondering what we're doing, take him into our possession and deal with him and hopefully come up with something that we can then present to the Roman courts to be able to say, this guy's a revolutionary, he's a threat to your rule, he's a threat to the Roman government, you need to deal with him. And so Judas comes, they have this opportunity, and they realize they have to move quickly because as soon as the Passover begins, no one will be executed out of reverence of the Passover, and they, the opportunity that they've just been given could disappear just as fast as it came. So they realize they have to move incredibly fast, and they begin to put their plan into action. Now, to understand this legal system that Jesus is about to really be tried before, it's called the Sanhedrin, and we, we've seen it in Mark of what we're reading, but to understand its significance and to understand its history, I need to take you to somewhere else in the Old Testament. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 16. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 16, beginning in verse number 18. Deuteronomy 16 verse 18 says this, Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. So this, the Sanhedrin was established in the Old Testament. It was established by God for the people so that justice would prevail. And the, way, the system that they began to put in place was that in every town, the Sanhedrin would be established. The Sanhedrin means a sitting together, that the men of, the, 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 of that town would come together. 23 men were identified in every town to serve as, as a Sanhedrin for every town. Then in Jerusalem, you had what was called the Great Sanhedrin. The Great Sanhedrin was made up of 71 individuals. This was made up of priests and elders and scribes and the high priest and a number of individuals. They would come together and be a part of the Great Sanhedrin. The Great Grace and Hedron, which Jesus is illegally being called to appear before, is the, is the equivalent of kind of our, uh, our, our Supreme Court today. We have different courts throughout the land, and then in the end, ultimately, you can appeal to the Supreme Court if needed. 
And so this is really the, the judicial system that's there. It's, the fa- it's really the foundation for what we have today. And so the, the court that Jesus is about to stand before is the great Sanhedrin, the 71 men made up of all the different priests and leaders and, and the high priest himself to stand before Jesus. And again, the, the system is designed to guarantee equality. But Jesus has been brought there illegally. There's several things, again, details that help us understand more of the story that have not been afforded to Jesus, certain rights that have not been afforded to him that are written into the the Jewish judicial system. The first right is he is is expected to have, really ensured to have a, uh, a trial in court. He's ensured to have a trial in court. If you remember, the story began, Jesus was never taken to court. He was taken to the high priest's home for the trial to take place. Secondly, trials were meant to take place in the day. They were required to take place in the day. There was no secrecy to it. It had to be out in the open. It had to be in public. If you remember, Jesus was arrested and taken charge of at night. At night, he's been taken to the high priest's home, not to the court's. Secondly, or thirdly rather, the trial had to be done in public. If you remember, Jesus' trial was not done in public. It was done in secret. It was a pre-established trial, a pre-established agenda that they planned. And so Jesus was denied those three things. Additionally, every Jewish trial was to take at least two days. It was to take at least two days so details could come forward, so there could be sufficient evidence presented for and against the individual, so, so witnesses who came forward could be examined. So every trial was to take at least two days. If you remember, Jesus just took a total of maybe, maybe six hours. All of these pieces that were being denied Jesus from the judicial system. Fifthly, the person who is being charged is to be presented with their official charge. They're to be presented with an official charge, and then that's what the case is established on. That never took place for Jesus. The individuals arrested Jesus, they brought him there, and then they brought him there trying to find a charge that they could present to the Roman authorities to take care of Jesus. And then lastly, in addition to all of this, is not once someone was, was declared to be worthy of the death penalty, the high priest and the Jewish leaders who were a part of that trial were required to wait a minimum of a day before carrying out the sentence. They were required to wait a minimum of a day so they could spend time in prayer, in prayer spend time in fasting, spend time seeking God to make sure that they had heard, they'd gotten all the details, praying that any further evidence that could perhaps change the details, change the trial outcome, could be presented so that they could really then sufficiently carry out justice. And again, we see that none of this took place. The desire was that Jesus would be tried and executed as fast as possible. So we see throughout this whole system this, that is built to establish justice and to, to really protect the victim or protect the individual who is on trial, that all of these things are being really set aside because the individuals in charge have a pre-established agenda that they want to see accomplished with Jesus. I want you to see something else in Mark chapter 14, the passage we've just read, verse 53. It says, they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Mark uses the word came together, and he uses it, and it can mean assembled, it can mean to come and sit together, much like the Sanhedrin does, but it also speaks of being of one voice. It says, they came together not to hear the voice of the victim, but they came together with one voice against the victim. 
You get the picture of them coming and, and really focusing on Jesus and how they can best mock him and make him look ridiculous and try to expose him in some way. And they're there, and they've, they've come against Jesus with one voice, one thought, one approach, and that's to make sure that his life is ended in the fastest route possible. And in the midst of all of this, I want you to see one more detail, and then we'll, we'll read on. Look in verse 54. It says, Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, There he sat with the guards and warmed himself by the fire. Picture this. Jesus is there. He's bound. He's been arrested. He's being harassed. He's really surrounded by people who want nothing good for him. They'd love to just see him uh, humiliated and put to death. He's there, and there's the guards there. There's all these different people who are there. There's the high priest servants, people who are on his payroll who are there. And it says, in the midst of this, Peter's there. Peter's there with Jesus. And I look at Peter in this moment in this story, and I I look at Jesus, and I think there's probably no other character in Scripture more than Peter in this moment who exemplifies both faithfulness and faithlessness at the same time. He demonstrates faithfulness because he's there when he doesn't have to be. All the other disciples in the garden, including Peter, panicked and fled. They ran away. They didn't want anything to do with the moment. They were more afraid for themselves than for Jesus, even though they weren't the ones being chased. They weren't the ones being arrested. And yet Peter, in his passion and his love and his commitment and his desire for Jesus, he comes and he's there in the midst of those who have surrounded Jesus, just demonstrating such passion and love and and his commitment to Jesus, such faithfulness. But then on the flip side, I think Peter at the same time is giving us an example of such faithlessness in committing to follow Jesus through all things. Look in verse 54 again. Look who he's sitting with. It says, there he sat with the guards and warmed himself by the fire. It says he found warmth with the very ones who would then put Jesus to trial. He found warmth and comfort from hanging out with the ones who did not see Jesus in the same light he saw him. He found comfort from being with the ones who would later mock him. They would mock Jesus. They would slap him around. They would spit on him. They would insult him. They would humiliate him. And yet that's who, G- that's who Peter found comfort in being with. That he, he, he was faithful and willing to follow Jesus right up to a certain point, And the conditions had to be right. The circumstances had to be right. And as long as the conditions were right, he would, he would identify himself with Jesus. But the moment there was pressure, the moment something stood out that ultimately could cost Peter something in following Jesus, he said, no, that's not me. He followed Jesus only under the right conditions. Let's look on in verse 56 again. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with human hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. In Matthew's account of this, in Matthew 26, when Matthew's talking about these false witnesses stepping forward, and Mark repeatedly says this. He repeatedly says their false witnesses, uh, their testimonies wouldn't agree. He wanted to make it clear. What these people were saying about Jesus was not accurate. Their witness about who Jesus was and what he said was not consistent with who Jesus was. And Matthew tells us that when these individuals step forward and they begin to speak out against Jesus, Matthew says that they begin their accusation of Jesus. They say, this fellow said this. This fellow said that. 
And the, the word they use for this fellow that Matthew records is a word that shows disdain, it shows dishonor, it shows disrespect. These individuals held, held Jesus uh, with little reverence, with little regard. They were there to make sure that the end result was that Jesus would be found guilty. And it says that they come and they begin to distort Jesus' words. They present one thing and it doesn't make sense. They present another thing and it's not consistent. And, and even in this, there's a, a right to Jesus that's been denied. So according to the judicial system, that there had to be at least two witnesses who had not been in, con, in contact prior to that moment who could give testimony uh, and confirm the other's witness of the individual of what was done that they were in agreement in what they said without having been set up or talked to before the trial began. And yet these individuals keep being brought forward with this idea of how do we prove that Jesus is guilty? How do we end up turning him over to the Roman authorities so that they would put him to death? And Mark keeps saying, whatever they're saying, it's not consistent with who he is. Whatever they're saying, it's not consistent with, with what he's done. Whatever they're saying, it's not consistent with the things that Jesus has said. Again and again and again and again, it says that they keep coming forward. And finally, they come forward and they say, this, this fellow said that, if, if, that he's going to tear down the temple, and in three days, he's going to build it again. And if you look at what Jesus said, it's a major distortion to what Jesus said. In John 2, Jesus actually told the Jews, if you destroy this temple, he said, I'm not going to destroy this temple. If you destroy this temple, I will build it again in three days. They, they took his words and they twisted them. And even in that, his meaning was not to build, tear down the temple. And they very well uh, knew that that was not his intent, but rather they, they took his meaning, what he meant, and distorted it because he was talking about his coming death and resurrection, but they continued to distort his words and said that he's going to tear down the temple. Now, in, in Jesus' day, in New Testament time, Old Testament time, tearing down a temple or defiling a temple was, was a huge uh, act of dishonoring a nation, a huge act of dishonoring a country, and really ultimately trying to, to tear apart a people group. If you look in Acts chapter 19, there's a time where Paul comes in and he comes into to a city, he comes into Ephesus and he begins to preach the gospel and he's just sharing the gospel and people, there's, there's uh, healings that take place. And finally, individuals come and they, they feel threatened by the gospel and so they make up this accusation that he's here and ultimately he's going to dishonor the temple the, uh, of, to our God, to the goddess Artemis. And so it says that the crowd begins to, to rush into the stadium. 25,000 people rush together out of concern that their temple is going to be torn down and their temple is going to be dishonored. When you look through the Old Testament and you look at the history of the Jewish nation, you'll see that in some of God's judgments against the nation, trying to bring them back to himself, that there was a point where he finally allowed his temple to be torn down. That it was, it's a symbol and it's a reminder of the presence of God with him. But in, in Jesus' day, to honor, to dishonor and to tear down a temple was a great dishonor to a nation. And so they figured we can really begin to paint Jesus as this revolutionary if we can sell the idea that he's here to tear down the temple. But in all of this rush, all of the, the plans that the religious leaders have uh, against Jesus and all of these things that they've put into place and they've moved forward on, they have one huge problem. And their huge problem is that they can't get at least two witnesses to say two things that would line up enough to get Jesus in trouble. In, according to Roman law as well as Jewish law, the Jews had lost the authority to put someone to death about 20 years before. They could still excommunicate, but they couldn't put someone to death. 
but in the Jewish law as well as in the Roman law, that in, in any type of capital trials that took place, if someone came forward as a witness and was found, found to be a false witness, ultimately they would be put to death. And so the religious leaders knew that if they put forward these false witnesses and, their, and their, uh, their falsehood was seen for what it was, not only would these witnesses be put to death, but also the, the, the priests themselves, the individuals who were part of the Sanhedrin, really run the risk of, of putting their neck on the line as well and being found out that they were trying to, to manipulate the system. And so they realized we've really got to solve this. We've got to find a way to get Jesus in what he's saying. And so finally, the high priest has just had enough. He's just, he's had enough of this. He's had enough of hearing the accusations. He's had enough of Jesus not answering. He's had enough of all of this. And finally, the high priest steps up in verse 60. It says, then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. That the high priest finally just gets to this point. He says, I'm in, this is enough. I'm going to confront Jesus on my own, and he confronts Jesus, and it says that Jesus remained silent. Now, some translations, and it might be one that you're holding, some translations say that Jesus held his peace. He held his peace. You get the picture of all of this, the wickedness of these hearts just being unleashed against Jesus. That one of Jesus' close friends who has pushed through the crowds and is there in the, the courtyard of the high priest listening to all of this, and perhaps Jesus can even see him, and in just a few moments, Peter's about to deny Jesus, and Jesus already knows that. He's already, he's already foretold that. And in all of this stuff, and all of these, these false accusations, and Jesus knowing the full weight of the cross that was coming and, and what was about to take place, that in the midst of all this, it says, Jesus held his peace. He held his peace. And it's a reminder and a picture over all of this. And we can't forget this in any of this part. Any of these story or the, the ones we're going to look at in the days ahead, we can't forget in all of this that there's not one point where Jesus is not in control. That through all of this, it's not the high priest who's in control. It's not the guards who are in control. It's not the soldiers who are in control. It's not the crowd who's in control. It's not Pilate who's in control. It's Jesus who is in control of all of this. So he held his peace. He wasn't disrupted by it. He, wasn't, he, he didn't lose his peace over it. It says that he held his peace. And then verse 61 but Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? One of the other gospels makes it clear at this point that the high priest put Jesus under oath before God. And so Jesus then at that point was obligated to answer. And Jesus said this, he said, I am. Gives again the name, one of the names for God. He said, I am. And he confirms directly the, the fact that he is proclaiming to be the Messiah. And he says, I am. But then Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't hesitate in what he says next. And then he looks right at Caiaphas and he says, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. That he looks at Caiaphas and he says, Caiaphas, I am the Messiah. I am the blessed one. I am the son of God. In fact, more than that, I, I am God himself in flesh. And then he says, and Caiaphas, this is not the last time you're going to see me. You're going to see me again, and I'm going to be coming in the full authority, in the full power, in the full presence of God himself, and I will stand as judge over you. He, he, he just lays it out to Caiaphas. And at this point, Caiaphas, Caiaphas just goes nuts. He loses it. Listen to this, verse 63. It says, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. Do you, have, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? 
They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit on him, then blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. It says the high priest just goes nuts. He just goes berserk. He can't, he's just blown away at what Jesus has just said, and he tears his robes. And in the Old Testament, it tells us that the tearing of the robe was a sign of grief. It was a sign of heaviness of heart, often done over sin. For the high priest, he's not doing it because his heart is broken over what he's heard. He's tearing it as, as an outward act, a religious act, to tell people finally, we've got what we were looking for. We've got what we want. And it says they begin to spit him, spit on him. They begin to mock him. They begin to hit him. They begin to make fun of him. And then it says, and then the guards joined in. This is the highest courts of the land. Can you imagine this level of behavior of what we're just seeing? It's absolutely embarrassing, the, the level of behavior that this high court is demonstrating towards Jesus. Can you just imagine at one of our, one of our uh, Supreme Court hearings that if one of the chief justices had gotten angry over something he heard and stands up and rips his robe and then jumps off the bench and goes and begins to beat the person and spit on them and mock them, but that's what's taking place with Jesus before this high court. The behavior that is being exhibited is absolutely just embarrassing. But I look at this story, and, and we look at this story, and we look at the trial of Jesus, and the details that really emerge and, and fit together to give us this clearer picture of what's taking place. And when I look at that, I, I think of just a handful of questions that I think for you and I that we can take and should take and examine our lives by. So let me just give you uh, four questions very quickly to consider. Questions that I would ask you to take and just prayerfully consider. Prayerfully turn over before God over in your heart and in your life, and allow the Holy Spirit to look over your life and to examine and reveal things to you that perhaps you don't know about yourself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it tells us that the Holy Spirit takes the, the secret things of God and makes them known to us, and he reveals them to us. And I think that if the Holy Spirit does that, that work, he takes the unknown things of God the Father and reveals them to us because he's with us forever. How much more can the Holy Spirit, if we're willing to let him, take unknown things about our own lives and reveal them to us if we're willing to let him? To allow him to look through and examine and, and show us things in our lives, areas that he wants to deal with, areas he wants to grow, areas that perhaps uh, trip us up, that continue to lead you into sin, continue to affect your witness. So four questions to consider. First, is your faithfulness to Christ dependent on the right circumstances? Is your faithfulness to Christ dependent on the right circumstances? Is your faith like Peter that you'll follow Jesus up to a certain point? As long as it's comfortable, as long as it works, as long as the right circumstances and the right conditions are met, but the moment it becomes uncomfortable, the moment your comfort zone is stretched, that that's the point where you have had enough. Is, it, is your faithfulness to Christ a matter of like Peter, that in the right places you can say the right things, you can do the right things around the right groups of people, and here at church you can sing at the top of your lungs, and you can give, and you can, you can sign up across the room for all sorts of different things. But then in the, when the circumstances change and the conditions aren't so favorable that your faithfulness to Christ begins to waver. See, the Bible says much about God's faithfulness towards you, that his faithfulness towards you is unwavering. There is not a circumstance or an obstacle or a challenge that you will ever face in this life that his faithfulness will waver towards you. The Bible declares from front to back his faithfulness towards you and towards your life. What does your life say about your faithfulness towards him? Is it consistent or is it comfortable? Secondly, what type of witness does your life give to those around you? What type of witness does your life give to those around you? 
Is it like the witnesses who came forward to testify about Jesus? And the more they spoke, the more it became clear that they really didn't know much about Jesus. That the more they spoke, it became clear that they really didn't know anything about the person of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, how he did, how he acted, what, who he was. That the more they spoke, the more their inconsistencies were revealed. How about your life? The more you're around people, the more that you're near them, the more they get to know you, do they get the, do they get the understanding that your life is founded on faith to Jesus Christ? Does your life give witness to the, to the faithfulness of Jesus in your life and your faithfulness to him? Number three, does your influence in the lives of others lead them to honor Jesus? Does your influence in the lives of others lead them to honor Jesus? The high priest was such a significant position. He had influence over so many people, so many things, so many ways. As I've already mentioned, the high priest, his position was to represent God to the people and represent the people to God. And yet, this position of influence was used to dishonor Jesus. It was used to make Jesus look as if he was, lacked value, was not worth living, was not worth living for. And what do your positions uh, in the lives of others, the positions of influence you hold, what does it say to them about Jesus? I think about the role that parents have here in this room. For a parent, I believe that there is no greater position of influence God will ever give you than as a parent over your child. It's not found in boardrooms that you sit in. It's not found in leadership roles that you fill. It's not found in all the different things that you can accomplish in life. The greatest position of influence God will ever entrust to you in this life is the role of parent. What type of influence are you demonstrating to your children? Just like the high priest, are you representing Jesus well to your children? And are you doing a good job of representing them to God in prayer? That you've been given such a position of influence, do you lead them to honor Jesus? Or others under your influence, do you lead them to honor Jesus, to respect Jesus? to recognize that Jesus is the most valuable, the most precious thing in your life or should be? What do you do with the positions of influence that God has given you in your life? And then lastly, in high-pressure situations, what does your life say to others? In high-pressure situations, what does your life say to others? We saw Peter, how the right pressure, the right circumstances, and his faith in Jesus faltered in a moment. But in high-pressure situations, what does your faith say to others? Is it like Peter? Or is it like Jesus who held his peace? That there was nothing that could steal his peace, could disrupt his peace, could take his joy, because he knew ultimately that the circumstances of life and everything about his life was anchored in, in, in who he was in God. And I look at this in every moment that Jesus has throughout this trial and, and still to come. In every moment that Jesus has, not once is he worried or fretting or wondering what's next, but in every moment he, held, he holds his peace. And then secondly, in every moment, he gives proclamation of the gospel. He continually looks to lift himself up, to lift up the hope that he is the answer to all mankind. Even to, even to Caiaphas, in this question to Caiaphas, he says, Caiaphas, you'll see me coming again. You'll see me coming in the full authority of God because that's who I am. And he continues to lift up the hope that he is the hope 
of all mankind in the world. And friends, for every single believer here, myself included, our lives should be centered upon declaring the hope that Jesus Christ is the answer to every problem, every solution, every issue in life. That Jesus Christ is the answer. He's the hope to all mankind. That is what every believer's life should be centered upon, and that is what every church, gospel-proclaiming church, should be centered upon. That it's not merely about programs, it's not merely about buildings or all sorts of different things that we can get caught up on. That the heartbeat of the church and the heartbeat of the Christian should be that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. That he is the answer to every one of your challenges. He's the answer to every one of your needs. That Jesus is the hope for you. That that's the heartbeat of every Christian and should be the heartbeat of every church. And friends, as a church, our desire is to be able to continue to represent Christ to our community and to those that God has placed in our backyard, to recognize that he's given us a significant position and place of influence right here in State College. And so with the different tables you see around the rooms this morning and the different ministry places to sign up, each place for, to sign up, whether it be to take a card in commitment or to write your name and contact info down in commitment, don't look at each of those positions and each of those places as merely a spot where we're gathering information or a spot where a body needs to fill a slot. I would encourage you to view it in light of eternity. View each one of those opportunities that's there, whether it be buying something as simple as a can of beans at the store or signing up to make coffee, or signing up to be here overnight with the homeless, or all the different things that you have. Don't merely look at those as just things that got to be done. Look at them in light of eternity and realize that every single one of those is an opportunity for your life and for this church to represent Jesus well into this community and to give testimony to the hope that we have in him. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. I'm going to invite the workers who are, need to be at these different tables. You're welcome to slip out to those tables and begin to ready yourself now. And I would just ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed for just a moment, and then I'll dismiss you. I'm going to release you to go and encourage you to go and to stop by the different tables, the different places to serve. But with every head bowed and every eye closed, not one person looking around this morning, this is just a moment of you before God. I have two things. Number one, you look at your life this morning and you would recognize that you have not given Jesus control of your life. You've not placed your faith in him. The Bible says that placing our faith in him comes when we repent, we turn from our sin, we turn from living for self, and we turn towards him. We turn towards Jesus and we say, Jesus, you're my answer, you're my solution, you're my hope, and I trust in you. And if that's you this morning, and you have yet to make that commitment, would you just raise your hand right where you're at? I see your hand. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for being honest. Anybody else this morning, you'd say, that's me. I need to make that commitment. I need to make that commitment to Jesus Christ this morning, right now. I see your hand. Thank you. I see your hand. For these two individuals who've raised your hands, I would encourage you in this moment that it's important, the most important thing you do is right now, the conversation you have with God. Begin to open your heart. Begin to, I believe even just that raising your hand is that first step of repentance, saying, Jesus, you're my answer, you're my hope, you're my solution, and I look to you. 
And as you begin to talk with Jesus right now, or even as you're standing there, begin to say, Jesus, I give you control. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of self. I center my heart on you. The Bible says that in that moment, that very moment, that there is a supernatural work that is unleashed in your heart. And that he begins to make you into a brand new person and begins to align your thoughts and your life and who you are with him. And I would encourage you before you leave today, take time to visit with someone. If you came with someone, share with them about that step of faith. If not, in the, in the lobby, near the, in the cafe area, we're going to have an individual who'll be there. Find that person. Visit with them. Let them share with you a little bit more and, and would love to just find ways to help you in any way that we can in, in being able to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And then secondly, for the rest here, and then I'm going to pray and I'll dismiss you. For the rest here, I told you I had two questions. The second question is this. For individuals here this morning, you look at your life and you just say, by God's grace, I want my life to be a better testimony to the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. And I'm raising my hand with that too. I say, by God's grace, I want my life to be a better testimony to the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. And so let's just pray. Father, I come to you right now. And God, I lift up every individual in this room. I thank you for the freedom and the working of your spirit in this moment in hearts and lives. God, I thank you for these two that have seen their need to place their faith in you. And I pray, God, that by your grace in this moment, you would begin to make all things new in them, begin to renew their minds and their hearts and their spirits as they confess their need and place their faith in you. And then, God, for each one of us in this room this morning, I pray, God, that we would recognize that in every moment, in every way, in every part of our day, that your Holy Spirit is with us. And because you're with us, you seek to guide us, you seek to influence us. But most of all, you seek to let Jesus be seen through us. And so I pray that from this point forward, God, in this week, that everything we do, everything we say, everything we are, we would take time to pause and think about your presence with us and how we can best reflect you to the world. So Lord, we give you our hearts, we give you our lives and pray that you'd work mightily through us as individuals and mightily through us as a church as we keep our hearts set upon you. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.